Well, as you've already heard, I preach at the pleasure of my boss. That would be David. Well, he usually just gives me a date and a target. And uh, on the 7th of April, he sent me a text and said, how about preaching the, the Sunday after Easter and stay in the Gospels and sort of wrap up the series on the life of Jesus. Give us an epilogue, if you would. And I said, wow. I almost thought my phone would disintegrate after I read that text. But I didn't. And here we go. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. For those of you that follow, they'll find an outline on panel 5. The first scripture from John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then one chapter later, just after he had shared the gospel with the Samaritan women and the disciples are returning from town with food and they look like Jesus has had something to eat and he's satisfied and they're wondering where he got it. And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your word tells us that the gospel is the power, your power unto salvation. And this morning, I pray that you would invest the preaching of it with power. Grant unto us the power to see and to hear and to begin to understand what you have done in Christ. And give me grace that I need to speak with clarity and to speak with the power that alone will come from you. And we ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for a long time, uh, I have uh, sort of prided myself in having a high tolerance for pain. You know, I grew up with that saying, boys don't cry. Well, I violated it a few times, but uh, I was uh, sort of putting off what I called a gas attack or indigestion. And it was bad, and I'd gut through it and take some antacids and stuff. And about a year and a half ago, uh, I was having one of those attacks in my in-home reliable medical monitor <clears throat> said to me, there are no gas attacks that are that bad. Well, I guess I was getting to the point of just not getting it out, but sheer denial. And so to make a long story short, we wound up in an emergency room. And uh, after a little uh, sonogram, the doctor said, you have stones in your gallbladder. And he said, would you like a, a little morphine to ease the pain? I said, no, I've got to decide before I, I can gut it out again. A little while later, he came in. And you know that chart on the wall with all the faces? How are you feeling, one to 10? Well, I was at a 10 plus, And I can't imagine the face I had. He said, would you like a little morphine now? And I said, okay. And he gave it to me, and wow, did that work. I mean, come on, there is nothing like pain relief. 
I mean, even you ladies that have had babies can give me an amen, right? That's weak. <laughs> All right, but there is really nothing like pain relief. And if you go to John 3.16 of our text this morning, you'll see in there a terrible word. And that terrible word is perish. Now, I'm not going to dwell at length on that word, but it is something that will stagger your imagination when you begin to understand the biblical content of what that means. And just to touch on it briefly, I want to say a couple of things that Jesus said about it. In Luke chapter 12, he says this, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has been killed has authority to throw it into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, he says this. He says this about what is happening there in hell. He said, the worms that eat them do not die. And the fire that burns them is not quenched. Perishing under the wrath of God is terrible beyond belief and even imagination. It is to be continually dying and yet continually living. It is to be continually alive to suffer more with absolutely no help of pain relief. No help of pain relief. And if that is true, and it is, and it is fair to say that the question that we will address this morning is the most important question of our lives, of my life, and of your life. And that question is simply this. What does it take to save us from eternally perishing under the wrath of God? Important question. What will it take? We go back to John 4.34. Jesus answers that question for us in a very interesting and a very concise way. Jesus says in those verses, the thing that fuels my life, the thing that empowers my life, the things that drive my life, the things that shape my life are here. And there are two of them in that verse. And we're going to look at both of them this morning. So Jesus' life was shaped by these, these two things. And the first thing he says, my bread, my daily bread, that's which I take each day for the energy I need to do what I do, is to live to do his Father's will. To live to do his Father's will in everything. To fulfill everything the law requires. To meet everything that was demanded of it and to do nothing that was forbidden in it. That's why he lived. I lived to do my Father's will, to do all the good and to shun all the evil, to live a sinless life. And Jesus completely succeeded where Adam failed. He completely succeeded in doing his Father's will where Adam failed. You remember the sermon David preached on the baptism of Jesus? 
John the Baptist is about to baptize him, but he's, he's reluctant because he knows who Jesus is. And he says, not me, but you, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, let it be this way for now, for it is right, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was obeying his Father's will to fulfill all righteousness. That's why the Savior lived. That's what drove him day after day when he got up to do his Father's will. And theologically, that is called active obedience. Christ actively obeyed his Father's will for you and for me in everything he did. And we see that. And we say, why? Why did it drive him so to live a righteous life? Well, it did so because he knew why he came. He came to save sheep that his father had given him. But the sheep that his father had given him were lost sheep, like me and like you. And like me and like you, all the sheep, we have no righteousness of our own. So Christ was accumulating to himself the perfect man, a perfect and complete righteousness of his own. And if you don't believe who you are and what you don't have, hear how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have sinned and turned away. All together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You know what? There are no loopholes in those verses. There are no exceptions in those verses. It is the situation that all of us face. And the real point is, the total lack of righteousness is our problem. We do not have what we need at all because what we really need is a complete and perfect righteousness. That's the only thing that will do. In the book of James, in the second chapter, verse 10, James says, if you keep the whole law but break it in one part, it's essentially breaking the whole law. It's as if you were being lifted out of a pit of destruction by a chain, and one link in that chain would break, and where would you be? You would be back in that pit of destruction. You can have 99 perfect links, but one that would fail, and then everything would fail. And so the point is made over and over again in the scripture that we have this problem. Now, when we think of what James wrote, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. And my life is a trail of broken laws and unrighteousness. I told someone this morning, I, I dressed to preach the sermon. My black suit depicts the fact that I have no righteousness. My red tie tells you that I need the blood of Christ. And my white handkerchief says, if I'm going to have a righteousness, it's going to have to be added to me. Now that wasn't deliberate, it just sort of happened. But if you can remember that, you can remember the message of this morning's word to us. And you see, Isaiah was right 
when he talked about those who think they have righteousness. Hey God, I'm really pretty good. I did more good than I did bad. I'm not such a bad person. All that manufactured self-righteousness, Isaiah says, all of your righteousness, every bit of it, every shred of it, you can't even take it at the Salvation Army of the Goodwill. All of it is filthy rags. So we are without any righteousness when only complete and perfect righteousness will do. Puts us in a bad situation, right? In the last century, there were two theologians that contributed greatly to the theology that we have today and to the church that we are today. One was a man named J. Gresham Machen, and the other was John Murray. Machen was a professor out of Princeton. He wrote several books, Christianity and Liberalism, The Virgin Birth of Christ, The Origin of Paul's Religion. They were all scholarly works directed against those who are trying to, if you would, subvert Orthodox Christianity. None of them have been, if you would, successfully addressed even on an academic level. And Machen was on an evangelistic trip up to the North, up to the Dakotas. And apparently it was in the winter and he was riding around in a car without a top on. And he contracted pneumonia. And because he didn't have the advantage of modern antibiotics or modern medical care, he got worse and he got worse and he got worse. And when he was near death, he sent a telegram to his friend, John Murray, a fellow professor at Westminster. The telegram was short yet profound. It said, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without his obedience and without his righteousness. So the more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves, the more we know we need a righteousness that is not our own. And if we are going to have it, it is going to have to be given to us. You don't have it. It's gotta be received. And you see, that's sort of only half the problem. His act of obedience to secure our righteousness is not enough. Sinners needed something more. For you see, there's an account against us with God. Our sins. And those sins had to be paid for. And so the second thing in 434 that Jesus lived for, that he actually looked forward to in, in, in the most profound way, he said he lived to complete or finish his Father's work. When Jesus was incarnate and came to earth, it was the ultimate business trip. There was no pleasure in it at all. And his submission and his humiliation from the humble cradle to the cruel cross is all classified as his passive obedience. He deserved none of it. None of it was his due. He took it for me. He took it for you. Passively, before his accusers, he did not open his mouth as a sheep before its shears is dumb. He submitted passively to the cross 
for me and for you. Philippians 2 says it like this. Christ, even though he was in the very nature, God did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness and appearance of a man, he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. So why did he do this? He had to do this because God's justice had to be satisfied. If God's justice would not be satisfied, would not have been satisfied, then we would perish and we would not live. In Leviticus 17, the author of Leviticus, Moses, tells us that there's life, and that life is in the blood. And when the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 is explaining what that means, he says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The blood must be shed. And so, if the countless sins of a countless multitude of sinners is going to be forgiven, how great a price must be paid? How big, how much must it be? It must be all that God could give. And what could he give more than his own son? Who of us would give one of our children over to death to ransom somebody who had offended us, someone who was a scoundrel, someone who hated us. We wouldn't do it. But God so loved the world that he did it, that his justice might be satisfied, satisfied by him on the cross. And ultimately, what that meant for Jesus is that the blood of Jesus was the only possible payment that could be rendered. When the spotless Lamb of God, God the Son, the sinless man died, what did Jesus say? He said, it's finished. It's finished. What is finished? What was finished was the work of atonement the work of propitiation, the work of somebody dying in our place. He was slain and his blood was poured out, if you would, at the foot of the altar. Jesus literally bled to death from his wounds. And as the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, so how much more now the blood of Christ at that foot of the altar, which was the cross. You know, people wear a cross sometimes as jewelry. We forget that Jesus didn't wear a cross, the cross wore Jesus. And so the price was paid, the only price. And when it was paid, he declared, it is finished. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God has laid on him deliberately and purposely the iniquity of us all. And he has borne the punishment for us. He has finished the work. For years I was privileged to be the pastor of a famous linguist and Bible translator named Bob Longacre. And on a mission trip to Mexico City, we were 
in the Anthropological Museum in Mexico City, standing in front of the exhibit on the dedication of the Pyramid of the Sun to the Aztecs. When you read about that dedication, it was staggering. It basically said somewhere between 25 to 80,000 people were sacrificed by the Aztecs to dedicate that pyramid to the idolatrous God of the sun. And as we were standing there and talking, Bob said that no matter where he has gone to translate scriptures, and he had gone everywhere, Mexico, South America, Africa, Asia, he said in every language that he has worked, there is a word, there is a sense, a phrase, if you would, that enabled him to translate atonement. The whole idea of somebody dying for another was culturally pervasive throughout the world. And so when God sent his son, that's what he sent him to do, to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Notice how it says that. God so loved the world. I think of love sort of mathematically. It's a combination of two things. It's a combination of mercy and of grace. Mercy, not getting what we deserve. That Christ got what we deserve. And grace, getting what we don't deserve. A righteousness from Christ. A righteousness that we have no claim on. And those two things come together and we see the love of God. And 40 years after Murray had received that telegram from Machen, Murray was in his native Scotland dying of cancer. And his, his last recorded prayer is this. God be merciful to me a sinner. Two great theologians thanking God in their last breath for the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And so the cross of Christ was his reason for living. And the cross of Christ is at one and the same time the perfect obedience to the Father's will and the full completion of the work that was given him. The blood of Christ is not enough alone. The righteousness of Christ must be added to it. So what does it take to save us from perishing under the eternal wrath of God? It takes Jesus' blood shed for you and his righteousness given to you. So this morning I'd like you to think about the cross maybe in a new way. I'd like you to think about it as the vertical part, pointing up to God and declaring that the penalty for your sin has been paid. You no longer owe the justice of God anything because Christ has fully paid it. In fact, our only contribution to our salvation is our sin, all of it. And then the horizontal parts of the cross reaching out and saying, come and don't receive your just deserts, but receive the gift of God. Receive the righteousness of Christ. 
for the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Come not to receive wages, but come to receive a gift. And so I say to you this morning, one sinner to a bunch of other sinners, to sinners who are literally on the death row of eternity, what a promise, what a hope. Instead of the prospect of perishing, here is the promise of paradise offered as a gift. And this morning, if you have not believed the gospel, if you have not trusted Christ's blood to pay for your sins and received his perfect righteousness for your robe in glory, do not delay. Believe in Christ now and the salvation that he offers will be yours. It will be his blood and your righteousness which will be your hope today and forever in glory. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved.